0: Just a reminder that Stats and Stories is running its data visualization contest to celebrate its 300th episode. You can grab data about the show to analyze and submit your entry at statsandstories.net slash contest. Your entry has to be there by June 30th. Once we prepare to mark Earth Day 2023. Many of us are also coming to terms with the latest climate report from the IPCC, which said the world is on the brink of catastrophic warming. News like that can make it hard for individuals to know what they can do to have an impact on the environment. One movement suggests we can all help with conservation efforts by... Planting local That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Doug Tallamy. Tallamy is the T.A. Baker Professor of Agriculture in the Department of Energy. Entomology, and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware, where he has authored 111 research publications and has taught insect-related courses for 41 years. His books include Bringing Nature Home, The Living Landscape, co-authored with Rick Dark, New York Times bestseller Nature's Best Hope, and The Nature of Oaks, winner of the American Horticultural Society's 2022 Book Award. In 2021, he co-founded Homegrown National Park with Michelle Offendary. Doug, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it.
0: What is the Homegrown National Park?
1: Well, it's officially, it's a small nonprofit designed to encourage people to conserve on private property. And we conceived it, well, we are in the middle of the sixth great extinction event, and we've got parks and we've got preserves, but they're obviously not doing the job. So we have to start practicing conservation on private property. And most of the country's privately owned. 85.6% of the country east of the Mississippi is privately owned, 78% of the whole, whole country. If we don't know it, do conservation on private property, we're going to fail. And we can't afford to fail. You mentioned the serious problem of climate change. We've got a serious problem of biodiversity loss as well. And if you join Homegrown National Park, you can address both of those at the same time. It's simply uh, an effort to use a little bit of social media, a little bit of, of competitiveness, the competitiveness of human nature, to get people to redesign their home landscapes. We've got 135 million acres of residential landscape, and if everybody uh, put in some powerful native plants that support the biodiversity around us, we'd be in much better shape. So the question is, how do we get that message out to people? And that's what Homegrown National Park is all about.
2: You you know, this was a—I'm sure you didn't just roll out of bed and say, you know, I think we should have Homegrown National Parks. You know, that that there was probably a little bit of a—you might have slept on it maybe a, a whole week before you came with this great idea. So can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the origin story?
1: Yeah, it's funny you say roll out of bed because that's almost what happened. <laughs> it was early, I had gotten up early, uh, I always get up early, but it was a Sunday morning. I had run across the statistic, this was 2005, 2007 I think, the statistic that we had 40 million acres of lawn in this country. And I remember sitting at my, my kitchen table on Sunday morning and saying, well, gee, how big is that? And I started adding up the area of all the major national parks. And you can add them all up and it's still less than 20 million acres. And I said, well, gee, if we cut the area of lawn in half and, and, and you know, restore it to ecosystem function, because lawn doesn't do what we need it to do, uh, we would have uh, an area bigger than all of our national parks, our major national parks combined. So I said, gee, we'll do this at home. We can call it Homegrown National Park. And that, that's how the idea came about. Um, the fact that we needed conservation, that was a much longer story. And, and we can go into that if you want. But
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear how, how can people sort of engage in conservation in their yards? Because I think we imagine it as this very giant, monstrous thing that has to be done by an institution. How can an individual do this?
2: Yeah, and, you know, can I just well, just to add on that real quick, the, the, you know, what she's asking, I, I found myself thinking, how, does, how do individuals tie into your idea of ecosystem function?
1: Right. Uh, well, the first thing I tell people is that don't worry about the entire planet's problems because you'll just get depressed and you feel like you're not going to make a difference. Uh, focus on the piece of, of the earth that you can make a difference on. And if you own property, it's obvious that's, that's where you would start. Um, so there, there are a number of things you can do. You can, you can reduce the area of lawn because lawn, there are four things every landscape has to do if we're going to reach a sustainable relationship with, with the ecosystems that, that sustain us. One is protect the watershed. Another is sustain uh, complex communities of pollinators. The third is sustain a food web. In other words, choose plants that are going to pass on their energy instead of just hold it. And the fourth is, is sequester carbon. Lawn does none of those things. So reducing the area of lawn is, is a great step, step forward. Uh, we can use keystone plants, the plants that are, are supporting most of the food web. We can, we can turn out our lights, our, our uh, lights we have on at night, or replace the bulbs and put in a, a yellow bulb because uh, light pollution at night is one of the major causes of insect declines that, that people are measuring. Um, we can stop using uh, pesticides that, you know, for the, except for termite control, they're all unnecessary at, at home. Uh, we can fire Mosquito Joe, who's killing everything at, without controlling mosquitoes. Um, we can put in a pollinator garden. We can, we can do all kinds of things. One person can, can turn around the ecological effectiveness of their little piece of the earth. They can see the results. Uh, which is motivating they'll, they'll do more of it they can provide a great example for their neighbors saying you know this I've done this and I've done it in an attractive way that fits into our, our culture so there's a lot of things that each person can do and of course if everybody did that we wouldn't have these big problems
0: you mentioned keystone plants what what kind of plants are we talking about
1: okay we're talking about the plants that provide that, that support the most caterpillars. Caterpillars are the, the bread and butter of, of uh, food webs. They are passing on more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of plant eater. Remember, plants are capturing energy from the sun. Through photosynthesis, they're turning it into food, into the simple sugars and carbohydrates. Uh, that essentially is all the food for, for uh, animal life on the planet. Most vertebrates do not eat plants directly. Most vertebrates eat invertebrates that, that ate plants, and those are typically insects. And again, caterpillars are are the most effective in terms of moving energy from plants to higher trophic levels. And if you don't do that, you don't have the higher trophic levels, and that's called ecosystem collapse. So which plants are best at doing that? They're the ones that that support the most caterpillars, and we know what they are because there's 100 years of caterpillar host records in the literature. And it turns out that just 14% of our native plants are supporting 90% of the caterpillars that are out there. So we call those fourteen percent the keystone plants, the ones that are doing the best in terms of passing on that energy. And in most eighty-four percent of the counties in which they occur, oaks are number one keystone plant. So I could I could put my finger on the map almost anywhere and say you should plant an oak and, and be correct.
2: <laughs> you know, it's an it's an interesting question to to me when when you're talking about the, this reclaiming part of a, a yard of a lawn and and it, it seems like it always it touches on this this need to change a, a, a perception of aesthetics of, of space and of outdoor space I mean uh, you know one thing that comes clear in in your book the this uh, that nature's best hope is is that you know we have these invasive species that have been embraced these ornamentals these these alien plants that are alien to to our com- our community to our ecosystem that we've celebrated as as this aesthetic ideal. And yeah. you know how, changing the idea of saying, you know, isn't it cool to see that that, you know, my my dead flowers are still being eaten by birds in the winter? That's a, that's a different mindset than saying clear it all out now before before it comes, before winter comes.
1: We've had this idea forever that plants are decorations. They've got the horticultural industry which is not Uh, populated with ecologists. They're about decorating the landscape and I understand that because plants are beautiful and they do make beautiful landscapes. Uh, But we have not been choosing our plants based on ecosystem function. My message is we can do both. Uh, We can have ecosystem function and beautiful landscapes at the same time. So for a hundred years we've imported uh, plants from other continents labeled pest-free meaning nothing can eat them, meaning none of that energy is passed on, so we've created dead landscapes. In the meantime, um, many of those plants uh, have escaped cultivation, become serious invasives, pushing out the native plant communities that do pass on their energy, that do support the food web, and replacing them with plants that, that don't. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very serious problem. Uh, but it's another thing. That's one thing I forgot that homeowners can do. They can remove the invasive plants that are already on their property. And most people do have invasives without even thinking about it.
0: We talk about this idea of plants as of being ornamental. And, and, you know, I know my mother loves petunias and zinnias. But you talk a lot about the importance of planting indigenous plants to feed pollinators, right? Bees love petunias and zinnias too, but they may not do the same work as something that is native to the land. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Well, first of all, people think that all, the only important insects are pollinators. They are very important, but don't forget those caterpillars, which of course turn into moths and many of those are pollinators, but You've got to support the food web and you've got to pollinate the plants. Those are two major things that insects are doing. Well, so it turns out that, particularly if you're talking about, about caterpillars or insects that, that eat plants, that get their energy from plants, you have to remember that plants don't want to be eaten. So they protect their tissues with nasty tasting compounds, secondary metabolic compounds that make the, the tissues either bitter or, or toxic. Well, our plants do eat our insects do eat plants, and they do that by developing adaptations that circumvent those, those uh, defenses. They get around them. But that happens through a long period of, of uh, co-evolutionary interactions. The, the insect is associated with, with the plant lineage for eons, and they develop the adaptations that allow them to get around those, those compounds so that they can effectively eat it. But when those adaptations are in place, now they're locked into eating that particular plant lineage. I always use the monarch butterfly as a great example. Um, It is just an example because 90% of the insects out there are host plant specialists, just like the monarch. But monarchs, of course, eat milkweeds, and milkweeds are toxic plants. They're filled with cardiac glycosides. They're filled with uh, milky latex sap that gums up the mouth parts of insects. Monarchs have the adaptations to get around. They've got physiological adaptations that that, uh, uh, store and excrete the cardiac glycosides, detoxify it. They have behavioral adaptations that nullify the latex sap. They snip through the vein of a leaf before they eat it, and it cuts off the flow of the sap. Uh, So they're very good at eating milkweeds. They can't eat anything else. So if you take the milkweeds out of your yard and replace them with hostas, you've got a nice decoration. But the monarch then has two choices. Fly away and find milkweed someplace else or starve to death. And when you do that for 90% of the insects that are out there, and when there is no someplace else, and as we keep expanding our human footprint, that is more and more the case, then you've got global insect decline, which is what we're looking at right now.
2: So you've done some studies where you've you've compared kind of what, what an invasive species can support and the, the natives that have have been there can support. So can can you just do a kind of a quick uh summary of, of one of those types of studies where where you've examined kind of a, a native plant plot and a and di- you know kind of this invasive plot and how the differences in terms of insect
1: supported sure we've done those studies for for 15 years now but uh, a fairly recent one was very simple we went into hedgerows agricultural hedgerows in maryland delaware and pennsylvania uh, with an undergraduate, and we measured caterpillar communities in a standardized way in hedgerows that were invaded versus hedgerows that were not. Remember, the invasive plants are are basically from Asia. Well, they're almost all from Asia here. So. so our insects have not been able to adapt to them. Well, we're going to measure that. So we we looked at the caterpillar communities uh, in invaded and uninvaded hedgerows and found uh, a, the bottom line was a 96% reduction in Caterpillar biomass, the actual energy in that food web, uh, in, the, in the invaded hedgerows. And if you think of that as bird food, and it is, you've just reduced bird food by 96%. No wonder we've lost 3 billion breeding birds in, in this country. When, they, when they're breeding, 96% of our birds are rearing their young on insects.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about homegrown national park and the idea of individual conservation in our backyards with Doug Ptolemy. Doug, you mentioned watersheds in an earlier response. How can John help improve the watershed by what he plants in his yard?
1: John can increase the amount of plants in his yard, and he can use plants that have decent root systems. Trees, of course, are the best, depending on where you live. You don't want to put trees in, in the High Plains uh, prairie of, of Colorado. And a lot of people try to do that. But in most areas of the country, trees are appropriate. They have big root systems. Um, they are keeping the water on site. Uh, so the reason I talk about watershed management is because lawn, which we have so much of, now about 44 million acres, is terrible at watershed management. The roots are very short. Uh, they get sunbaked in the summertime. You get that downpour, and you know most of the water runs off taking with it the herbicides and insecticides that you have put on your lawn with uh, your fertilizer. It takes the fertilizer, too, right into the watershed. Uh, So lawn is your worst choice uh, in watershed management. It's actually uh, destroying your local watershed. So John can reduce the amount of lawn that he has. He's going to put something in the places he takes the lawn out of, and I recommend uh, trees. I recommend tree groves planting the trees young so that they can interlock their root systems with each other and become very stable. They're not gonna blow over and, and, and crush your house or your car in future years, uh, which is another new aesthetic. We're used to looking at trees simply as specimen trees. Well, that's not the way they grow in the forest. They grow with you know interlocked matrix of, of roots which is extremely stable. And it's excellent in managing that watershed. When it rains, those the leaves of the trees soften the downpour, the, you get soil compaction when the, the raindrops hit the soil um, directly. So when they hit the canopy of the tree, it softens that, and then you just get a, a dripping, and it allows the water to infiltrate before it runs off.
2: Man, I, well, I, I feel like I should leave right now. You know, I need to go. <laughs> I, but no, I, I mean, this is really something that's exciting to me, and I, I think that it's, it's, it's really this change of pers- perspective on what, what you hope to achieve in a lawn and what you hope what you hope to do. I, I know that you've also made the point that, that it's not it's not sufficient just to simply have these trees planted, but also kind of the base of the trees are an important part of this story. That there's there's almost there's a landing pad that's associated with trees. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that's an important part of this?
1: Yeah, uh, and this is this is the newest thing we're actually looking at. Of course, if the, if the caterpillars were trying to produce to feed the birds in our yard, and by the way, it takes six to 9,000 caterpillars to get one clutch of chickadees to the point where they leave the nest. So you need, you need plants like oaks that are making a lot of caterpillars. Well, those caterpillars are up on the tree. Most of them do not complete their development on the tree. They finish growing as caterpillars and then they drop from the tree and they've got a burrow underground to pupate or they spin a cuckoo in the, in the leaf litter that's under the tree. And of course the way we landscape, there is no leaf litter under the tree. We rake it all the way, we have grass right up to the tree. We mow it with our huge riding mowers, compacting the soil, making it very difficult for those caterpillars to get down underneath. So we're recommending now, I actually have a grad student who's still working on this to find out what the the best recommendations are. But a bed under your tree, at least as wide as the drip line, um, where you, it's a no-go zone. You're not gonna walk there, you're not gonna mow there, you're gonna plant there, you're going to have green mulch, living uh, ground covers, so that the, the ground is not compact. The caterpillars drop down, they can easily spin their cocoons or get underground with, without any, any issue.
0: What has the response been to these efforts? I mean, you said that that the homegrown national park idea came to you in 2007, and this is something that's been sort of continually growing, and you've you've had your books coming out. What has been the response to this idea that we can sort of individually work towards conservation, and how have you seen that shift since you started working on this?
1: Uh, That's a great question because when I wrote Bringing Nature Home, um, I didn't think anybody would read it. I thought it was a fun exercise, and I could get on with my life. I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong about that. Uh and it was just it was timing accidentally, but people are ready to take action. They're distressed at at these terrible statistics. The UN says we're going to lose a million species to extinction. Uh you know, and it will hurt humans. People don't want to hear that. What I'm saying is there's something you can do about it. So the response has been um it's been much faster than I thought it would. I've never had it, I was going to say, I've never had anybody come to my talk and then come up to me afterwards and say, you're totally wrong. Of course, they wouldn't do that. But um, what, what they say is, what they say is, how come I wasn't taught this when I was a kid? How come we're just hearing about this now? All right, we're a little late, but um, my message is there's plenty you as an individual can do. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. You can take your time in doing it, but you can get, get started and you can make a difference, and you can see that difference. That is really empowering. All these people that felt powerless and just, you know, the earth is going down the tubes. Now they can do something about it. Uh, so that's that's what's what's getting uh, people to join Homegrown National Park. And and the, the the challenge remains: how do we reach all the people that have never heard about it?
2: Well, I, I you know I want to I just want to congratulate you on 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 this brilliant synthesis of of. Lots of decades of research into an action plan that individuals can embrace. I mean, I, I I find myself just just even even coming here and you know to do this recording. You know, going by a golf course, going, you know, they could probably leave a good a good bit of their rough w- with. Indigenous you know sort of indigenous plants versus invasives they could do this if they put their mind to it I you know I, I go by the university which looks a lot like a golf course you know in yeah. terms <laughs> of in, in terms of gr- the, the grass presence so I, I did have a, a you know kind of two kind of related questions as a follow-up to that is uh, Have you seen changes on the University of Delaware? As uh, have you had have you been able to kind of influence the local practice of some of these really gigantic green spaces I, I I am I accept this that I have responsibility Rosemary does as well so we you know we're with you on that but but what is it that we can do if we have connections to larger entities that have giant green space.
1: Right. Yes, I have seen changes at, at, at Delaware. Delaware was, ne- was never terrible. It had a, a pretty good percentage of, of natives. Of course, you know, a campus is designed to handle uh, 15,000 students walking around. Uh, and, and there are places where green spaces are appropriate, for sure. We've got a big mall, and we're not, not proposing that we get rid of that. But there are a lot of places where we could switch out plants, particularly invasive plants. We did have a big get rid of the uh, burning bush all over, all over the campus. That was several years ago. Um, I've talked to the landscapers. I've learned a lot about the constraints they have. They had a great native planting uh, that, and I think it was accidental. But all the plants were native, and it was it was beautiful. Walking up a, a stairway, you could see it on either side. And, and the next year I went by, it was all gone. And I said, "What? What? What happened?" And they said, "Well, it turned out that it was interfering with a security camera on the roof of one of the buildings, aiming at a parking lot, and they can't have anything blocking that." You know. I, I haven't been thinking about that, but those are responsibilities of a big institution like this that we have to take take into account uh, but the um, we've got a sustainability committee now that we didn't used to have the the culture has has changed enacting it there are challenges, but you know if if the culture's changing and you try to enact it, you'll get there eventually
2: The city that we live in is talking about kind of what does it mean to have You know, think about rewilding lawns and the idea that, you know, this is not just a, you know, a nuisance overgrown plot, but this is a purposeful way of, of setting up a lawn. So that's something that I've seen even our little town <laughs> doing, which I I'm I'm really excited about. And I I know there's a lot of discussions not only just among individuals that are thinking about what they can do, but but even what they can do within organizations that they involve that that are they're interested in. So so I want to just to sort of thank you for that. And I and I take hope in that. And I I, I was just curious, you know, do you Are you seeing these glimmers of hope do you you know what what kind of changes have you seen was as you've looked at at this the movement you know this this kind of this this movement to to think about the homegrown national parks have you seen kind of this expansion have you seen kind of this increase in the area of of homes that are being dedicated to, to you know kind of native plants.
1: You know there are there are townships that have changed the regulation. All all new plantings on public properties have to be native, and you can see that happening. You go to a new development; most of the trees that developer puts in are are native these days. Much better. You know, it used to be it was 100% Bradford pear, and and that was that. Um, so you can see that. But what I'm really seeing is a, a change in interest, and I can just look at that. I, my own. Email. I mean, I cannot keep up with my email or talk requests. Three or four talk requests a day from people all over the country who want to hear about this. Um, so what they're interested in is the, is the message. I happen to be a deliverer, so I'm getting pounded with that. But I mean, it wasn't that it wasn't that way. It certainly wasn't that way 20 years ago, uh, and it had... But I could see that if I had a, a plot of all the talk requests over the last 20 years, uh, it would look like the human population growth rate. So um, that's a measure right there. The native native plant sales, the demand for native plants far exceeds the supply uh, at this point, and that's a great measure. Um, so uh, you know, there's a still a big empty niche in terms of. I would call them ecological landscapers or, or ecological gardeners because most people do not garden. And we're not going to make them start gardening. They want to hire somebody, and that's great. So right now they hire their lawn care company, their mow, Blow, and Go guys. I want to retrain all those people so they can stay. We're not going to put anybody out of business, but a little bit of ecological training and tell them how to do it in an effective way. How to use lawn as a cue for care? Uh, a a, a mowed strip of lawn outside that new new flower bed. And by the way, when you make those beds under the trees out to the drip line, you've reduced your lawn by a lot. That's how you do that. But lawn is a great cue for care. And so we're not suggesting that you stop mowing your lawn. We're suggesting you have less lawn. The lawn you keep is still going to be mowed and manicured. It's the area where you walk. It's a perfect plant to walk on without killing it. Um, So there are ways to do this that don't seriously impact the culture. I don't think anybody really thinks that four acres of lawn is that attractive. Uh, it's a no-man's land. You're never out there. There's no kids playing on it. It's just a default that we've fallen into, and then it's a it's a maintenance headache. So get that well planted, and, and uh, people won't object.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Doug, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: thanks for having me this
2: this has been outstanding Doug. Thank this is thank you for the good work and for this uh for the this mission that you're charging us all to to embrace
1: well thank you for helping with the mission because this is how it happens it's people like you that help get the message out
0: Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcast, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to Stories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.